Episode 3, The Biblical Creation Narrative Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and try to see how those events shaped our modern world. Welcome to Episode 3, The Biblical Creation Narrative. Today, we're going to take a closer look at the creation story that's found in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. The story in Genesis is very different from the other creation narratives that we looked at last time. It's different in terms of the tone, in terms of the content, in terms of the scope, and just the way that it plays out as you read it as a reader. Every ancient culture had some kind of creation narrative. But not all of those narratives survived. Some of those we have good chunks of, others we have mere fragments of. We have a very good record of the creation narrative of the ancient Hebrews captured in the book of Genesis in the Bible. But that might be only part of a larger oral Hebrew creation story. We see some other fragments of the story in perhaps the book of Job and also the Psalms. There's even additional parts of the story that are told in the Talmud and the Mishnah. The Talmud and the Mishnah are very old Hebrew commentaries on the biblical text, plus comments on comments on what the earlier commentators were saying. The Talmud and the Mishnah may preserve an older oral tradition outside of what was actually written down in the Bible. But the core of the story is told in the book of Genesis. As I mentioned last episode, it's really, really difficult to fix a date for the really, really ancient events that we have records of, because the records that survived don't line up well with each other. We don't have all the records that were written down because many of them didn't survive. They crumbled into dust over time and were lost. But copies were apparently preserved, and the copies we do have were copied very, very carefully. So we don't see a lot of changes from the oldest copies to the most recent. So we know that the copies we do have are are pretty reliable. The Bible has this issue as well. We don't have the really, really ancient copies of it. The oldest piece we have of the Old Testament, as I mentioned last week, uh, dates from around 600 BC, and that's a fragment from the book of Numbers, which was probably written a thousand years before that. So there's a thousand year gap between when it was first written down and between the oldest copy we have of it. The fragment from Numbers 6 says, May Yahweh bless you and keep you. May Yahweh cause his face to shine upon you and grant you peace. After that, the next oldest fragments we have are from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and those date to about 250 BC. And as I said last week, the oldest complete Old Testament we have is from 1150 AD, more than 2,500 years after the nation of Israel left Egypt. We do have older copies of complete books, like, for example, the Scroll of Isaiah from the Dead Sea Scrolls. That one's dated to about 150 BC. So it's very old, but not original. Isaiah was probably written uh, 500 years before that. But it's very, very close. The, The scroll from the Dead Sea Scrolls is very, very close to the modern version we have of Isaiah. So that shows that people were super, super careful when they copied these things down. So we know from that that the Bible's creation story, as it's written down, is relatively accurate to the original Hebrew creation story that was preserved in an oral tradition. We know they took good care of it. 
The Bible's creation story is from a very Israel-centric point of view, which was typical of creation stories in the ancient world. But it's quite different from the other creation stories of other cultures. It's different in the type of story. It's different in the narrative. It's also unique in the story that it tells of the character of God and the story of the condition of mankind. So what does the biblical narrative say? First, I think it's important to point out that there seems to be two stories in the book of Genesis. There's the story of creation, and then there's the story of Adam's family. They seem to be making different points, too, and there's different main characters in it. The first chapter of Genesis is about God and the work he's doing. God is the main character. But starting in the second chapter, the main characters are Adam, Eve, and their family. The story starts to be about them. Yes, God is there in the story, but the story is about Adam and his family. So let's look at both stories separately. First of all, in Genesis 1, we have the story of God creating the world. This chapter is unique in the ancient stories of creation in a number of ways. In most of the other stories, the gods were created out of things, like the sea or out of darkness. In Genesis, there's no creation of God. He just exists, and then he creates. The other stories usually involve cataclysmic battles between gods and some force or some monster. But in Genesis, we see God sort of tenderly creating all that is. And Genesis uses again and again the refrain, He saw what he had made, and it was good. That happens after every act of creation, including the creation of mankind. Genesis alone, among the creation myths, shows a God who cares about and deliberately crafts his creation, a God who loves what he has created. It also shows God loving the creation of men and women. Many of the other ancient creation narratives start with the idea of God and men at war. The Genesis story of creation is the Hebrew origin story of the world, and it provides them with a different worldview than many of the other cultures around them in the ancient world. The Hebrew worldview includes a God who interacts tenderly with man. Most other ancient cultures don't see God's interacting with men that way. Besides God's interaction with Adam, we see him extend kindness even to Cain, who had just killed his brother. We see him show favor and kindness to Noah, and then later to Abraham, and eventually to Moses as well. God is a God who interacts with his people in very, very personal ways. The tone of the interactions between God and men in the Hebrew Bible is starkly different than the way that gods and humans interact in the narratives of every other culture. The first chapter of Genesis ends with God looking at all that he had made, including people, and calling it good. As it says in the King James Version, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Once Genesis 1 is over, the story changes paths dramatically. In Genesis 1, the main character is God, and he does all the acting. He has all the agency. He's the one on stage. He's the one doing stuff. In Genesis 2, though, God is just a supporting character. He's still there, but the main character of Genesis from chapters 2 to chapter 4 is Adam. We switch from the story of God creating to the story of one particular part of that creation. The second chapter of Genesis starts to tell the story of Adam and his family. This, too, is different 
from many other creation stories. It's different in its intimacy. It's different in its level of detail. It's different in the way that it tells the story. One of the more unique aspects of this story of Adam is the description of the fall of mankind. It's unique, right? Genesis 2 and 3 make a really big deal out of mankind turning away from God and the consequences of that action. Unique in all the creation stories, the account of Genesis sets the stage for the problem of mankind, and it sets the stage for a multi-generational arc of redemption that includes even people to this present day. We see the first of that redemption in the story of Noah. There are other flood narratives in the ancient world with a character sort of like Noah, but only in the Bible is Noah's part of the story a story of reconciliation between man and God. Noah is introduced in Genesis 5, and then as his story starts in Genesis 6, there's this astounding statement in Genesis, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Apparently, except for Noah and his family, everyone had turned completely away from God and turned completely to evil. Other creation narratives don't make a point of something like this, that everyone has turned away from God, but it's a huge part of the idea of what's going on in Genesis. It's an astounding condemnation of humanity, too, that that every human had completely turned away from God and turned to only evil, and that all of the thoughts of their heart were only evil all the time. I mean, that's a pretty awful thing to imagine, a world like that, where everyone's thoughts are always evil all the time. It's like Cleveland or something like that. Maybe that's why there was so much fighting in the ancient world and in in all the other narratives. All of the people were just evil, and that's all they thought of was fighting. Maybe. I don't know. There's also the biblical account of the flood in Genesis, and it's different in Genesis than it is in other ancient narratives. The biblical account of the flood is unique in that it attributes the reason for the flood to be man's sinfulness. It also is unique in its details that tells of how it happened and how Noah survived it. Anyway, in Genesis, the flood is sent by God to wipe out humanity because of their wickedness. But of course, Noah and his family survive, and they go on to repopulate the earth. And it seems that after this, while wickedness still exists, it's a little bit less. There's definitely still wickedness, and we'll see it again in the next chapters in Genesis. But somehow, it seems like there's more option for people to not be wicked. After the flood, the narrative expands from one person, Noah and his family, to follow the expansion of man in the post-flood world. The Bible recounts the story of Babel, and it points this out as a way to explain all the different languages of the world, but it also points it out to mention the still ongoing wickedness that's a part of the world that hasn't completely gone away. But after Babel, the narrative focuses on Abram, who becomes Abraham the father of the nation of Israel. If you look at the book of Genesis as a whole, one big book, the main character of the book is clearly Abraham. Right? He's the one the book is about. The book of Genesis is about him. Everything that happens before that is just kind of a buildup to him as the main character. Now, I find this a little bit odd as a, for a couple of reasons. Um, Genesis is the story of Abraham written from the point of view of the Hebrews to explain the founding of their nation of Israel, right? He's their founding father. He's the guy that this book is about. And most cultures, when they tell the story of their founder, they make that guy into a great hero. Think about Gilgamesh or Aeneas or 
you know, the, the kings in the Iliad. They're great heroes. They have flaws, but they're great heroes. Or even the stories of George Washington in the United States, right? These people are portrayed to be great heroes. The biblical depiction of Abraham is that he's, uh, yeah, well, he's kind of a bumbler, right? He really doesn't do anything right, except that he does follow God's call to leave Ur and go to the promised land. He is not depicted doing heroic things in the book of Genesis. We see him repeatedly lying. We see him hiding from people, having an affair, not being a very good parent. He does usually turn around and then follow God, but there's a lot of things he does where he's just bumbling along. It's not really the kind of depiction you would expect for the description of the founding father of your country, which, oddly enough, adds some level of credence and believability to the story. The story of Abraham has a very, very different tone than the stories of other founders. It has this sort of first-person narrative feel to it, like it was written by someone with intimate knowledge of the story of what happened. In fact, all the early books of the Bible have that feel to them, like it's a first-person account, like someone who was telling the story was there. It's not the feel you get from reading other works of the ancient world. Those often feel bombastic, exaggerated, overblown. There's pieces of um, mythology in them all. Now, while the Bible clearly has some of these miraculous elements, it definitely feels more intimate, more subdued in its storytelling style, and it really does point out the flaws and failures of its main characters, including Adam and including Abraham. When you get to the story of Abraham, the Bible story is full of intimate details of his life, many of which don't really seem to make that much difference in the story in any important way, but they're included anyway, and that adds to the sense of intimacy in the sense that it's the story of a real person and their real life. It's at this point in the biblical narrative, Abraham's story, that we can conceivably begin to date what's going on in the Bible against the flow of history in other cultures. The Bible mentions the city of Ur as Abraham's home or Abram's home. Archaeology confirms that there was a city called Ur located along the Tigris, south of modern Babylon. And from there, Abram journeys to Canaan to what is known as the Promised Land. And archaeology shows us that there was a people that lived in the area called Canaanites. This also seems to correlate with the timeline of ancient Egypt as well. But as I said, it's hard to pin it down this far back in history. So Abraham shows up in Canaan and begins to establish himself and his family. God, in Genesis, makes a very specific covenant or agreement with Abram. In fact, that might be the very most important point that is made in the book of Genesis. It's the point of the story of Abraham, um, and Abraham's the main character. God made a covenant with Abraham that he will be Abraham's God, and that Abraham's children will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Which is kind of odd, because at this point we don't know that Abraham's ever seen a seashore. But he maybe has. Here again, we see the God of creation looking out for a specific person, Abraham, and a specific tribe, the nation of Israel. It's a small tribe, as tribes go, but God's looking out for them. We see that in other creation myths, but like I said, the tone is different. Like, for example... In the Iliad, we see some of the Greek gods assisting the Greek warriors and some of them assisting the Trojan warriors, but it's not on a personal basis like it is with Abraham. We see it again in the Odyssey with the Greek gods assisting or resisting 
what Odysseus is trying to do. But again, it's not personal and intimate like it is with Abraham. So a reasonable date for the time when Abraham arrives in Canaan is about 1800 B.C., As the biblical narrative goes forward from this point, we can be more and more sure of the actual timeline. By the time we get to the Exodus, which was probably around 1500 BC, we also are more able to place events along with the other things that are going on in the ancient world. Hard to do that accurately. um, And the Hebrew narrative does not really try to do that. But the Hebrew narrative does try to be sequential. It's not necessarily chronological in that it's dating things um, by what's going on in the rest of the world, but at least it's trying to be sequential. It does start to date things chronologically when it gets to the Hebrew kings later on. In Genesis and Exodus and those books, you see more like this guy begat that guy, and that guy begat that guy, and they lived this long, and so on, they lived that long, and they're trying to put it at least sequentially. So you go on and on from Adam to Noah to Abraham, and eventually Joseph and his brothers who go to Egypt. If you look at the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, as if they're kind of a long historical novel, it's finally at this point in the novel that we kind of get to the present tense. It's when Joseph and his brothers go to Egypt. It seems like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are written to an audience that has recently been in Egypt that's familiar with the idea that the Hebrews were in Egypt for a long time. It's kind of like Genesis is all backstory. And we pick up on the present day at some point when we're in Exodus. It's kind of reasonable to assume that Genesis and Exodus and then the books of Deuteronomy, Numbers, and Leviticus were all written not long after the Exodus. At least they were written down the first time at that point. Because they seem to be laid out in this way that Genesis is backstory and Exodus is recent history and it's all explaining where we are now. And then it becomes this sort of first person, present tense narrative, starting with really the Exodus itself. So there's a sense that Genesis is all backstory to explain the events that the audience is familiar with. That is, they're familiar with the nation of Israel living in Egypt. They're familiar with the plagues, the exodus, the wanderings. Even Exodus itself is an explanation of these familiar events. The story has all these points that seem to be familiar and relevant to the Hebrew audience of the story. So the Bible is a unique history of the Hebrew people. It's tying them back to their forefathers, back to Noah, back even to Adam. And as part of this origin story, it proposes these very unique ideas. That there is just one God. One God who created everything. And that mankind has turned away from God and thus descended into sinfulness and wickedness. And this sinfulness permeates everything that mankind does. It's a very, very different worldview than the worldview of ancient cultures. Most other cultures look at the difficulties of the world and they answer the question of, why is the world so hard? With the answer, the gods are against us. The Hebrew Bible answers the question of, why is life hard? With the answer, well, man has turned away from God and thus fallen into sinfulness and wickedness and thus is cursed. But it also begins to create a narrative of redemption as a loving God brings about a solution to the problem of man's sinfulness. 
That story goes on throughout the rest of the Old Testament. It's continued in the New Testament, and in some way we're still a part of it today. We will eventually get to the New Testament as we walk through history, but for now, know that both Testaments tell one long story of redemption and reconciliation. Again, that's very, very different from all the other creation narratives. The books of the Old Testament also seek to make a case for the nation of Israel being God's chosen people. The idea that a creation narrative also seeks to explain how God has favored one nation or another, that's common in all the other creation stories, but it's told differently in the Bible. The Bible consistently portrays the founders of Israel and the kings making mistakes and turning away from God. They don't come off looking like great heroes. The only really heroic figure in all the early stories is Moses, and even he makes some mistakes. Yet God honors his promises to the people of Israel anyway. The depiction of God is very, very different in the Bible than the depiction of the gods in other narratives. That's pretty obvious. The gods in other stories are depicted as squabbling, fighting, full of their own selfish agendas, and usually only peripherally involved in the affairs of mankind. They have limited powers. They're often created by other gods. They're really often pictured as just glorified humans with superpowers, but not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is described not as created. He just is. He's all-powerful. He's not limited like the gods of the other stories. However, he's also depicted as tender and loving towards his creation, not at war with his creation. He's tender and loving, especially towards mankind, even after they've turned from him. The Bible, especially the book of Genesis, portrays the world as a place where God cares for the humans he has created, but they've turned away from him. So he creates this grand redemption arc that will bring them all back. The Bible portrays humans as fallen and thus broken and makes the point that all of our difficulties come from this very act of turning away from God. Sin and wickedness come from having turned away from God. The hardness of life comes from having turned away from God. That point, that very salient point, is unique in the literature of the ancient world. So the Bible's worldview, which has begun in Genesis and is consistently supported throughout the Bible, is this. God is good and loving. Mankind has turned away from him and brought sin, wickedness, and difficulty upon ourselves. God is still pursuing us, and we keep turning away. Well, to be accurate, some of us do turn back to him from time to time, which is known as repentance. But overall, mankind is running headlong in the direction of away from God. And we call that progress today. To sum this up, there's a lot of creation narratives in the ancient world, and there are several in the modern scientific world as well. But none of them, to me, seem to capture the idea of the world, the understanding of this is the human condition, as well as the description portrayed by the Bible. The description of a loving God, a sinful humanity that's turned away from him, and an ark of redemption that will eventually bring us back to him. And this ark of redemption is captured in the Bible, even in its very first few chapters, and carried on to the very end. Next week, we're going to look at the gods of Egypt. Egypt.